you do that. Now take out your copy of God's Word or turn it on and go to Romans chapter 16. It's hard to believe, but we're coming to the end of our journey through Romans. We began over a year ago. There's been over 30 messages. I started in ministry full-time 30 years ago. And last year was the first time that I embarked on preaching through Romans verse by verse. Most people would say that the Bible is the most important book that's ever written, and many would argue that Romans is the most important part of the Bible. It's written by the Apostle Paul, inspired like all of Scripture by the Holy Spirit. He wrote it while he was in a city called Corinth to a specific church at Rome. But it speaks to us. It speaks of soteriology. Soteriology is what it means to be saved. Now, saved is kind of a churchy word, so let me give you the first of what's going to be several times of why we need to be saved. The Bible says that you and I were born separated from God. It's because of our sin. It's not anything that we've done. It's simply who we are. That sin separates us from God, and it demands punishment by God because God is holy. And the Bible even describes what that punishment is. It's called eternal or forever death, and it even tells us where that takes place. It takes place in hell. But God doesn't want that. The Bible says it's not his will that any should perish, but all, that should, all should come to repentance. So God made a way. We're going to learn in Romans that he tells us in chapter 5 and verse 8 that he demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he took our punishment. His punishment paved a way for you and me. It offers us forgiveness and gives us, by God's grace, an opportunity to express faith in Jesus Christ. When we express faith in Jesus Christ, we're saved. What are we saved from? We're saved from that eternal punishment of death. We're saved to eternal life. And the Bible even tells us where that's going to take place. It takes place in heaven. So this book talks about what it means to be saved. And we know that from the beginning. In chapter 1 and verse 16, it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The gospel is what I just described to you. You were separated from God, doomed to punishment in hell. God loves you so much that he made a way to bridge that separation. That way was through the cross of Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, he rose from the grave, he defeated sin and death, he became triumphant, and thus gave you a way to experience life. That's the second time in just a couple of minutes you've heard the gospel. There will be more. When the Bible talks about the gospel, it talks about being saved in three different ways. It say, we were saved. I can remember the time I was saved. I was a seven-year-old boy. I went into the backyard of my house where we lived because I knew that I was a sinner. I knew that I needed God's grace, and I ex expressed my faith in Christ. In that moment, though it's hard to understand, as a child, I was justified, is what the Bible calls it. It, was, it means it was just as if I've never sinned and just as if I've always obeyed. That's when I was saved. But here's the good news. I am being saved. The Bible calls that being sanctified. I'm sanctified in that I'm becoming more and more like Christ. When I was saved, I was saved from the penalty of sin. As I'm being saved, I'm sanctified. I'm being saved from the 
power of sin. But one day, thank you, Jesus, there's coming a day where we'll see Jesus face to face. There are no more sickness, no more pain. And get this, no more presence of sin. We will be saved. That's when we're glorified. And the book of Romans tells that whole story throughout 16 chapters. We've not skipped any of the hard words. I can remember those sermons when I stood up here and talked about circumcision over and over and over again. We've not even skipped hard names. We spent a whole week, two weeks ago, just reading through the list of names in Romans 16 and discovering what we could learn. So how do we sum it all up? Now that we've come to the end, I would give you this phrase. God gives you everything you need in the person of Jesus Christ. So go live your life through the power of the gospel and change this world for the glory of God. In just a few moments, we'll leave this building. We're leaving a place that's made by hands, man, man's hands. We're going into a world that God spoke into existence. And as we do that, every one of you who are followers of Christ have the same opportunity. God's given you everything you need in the person of Jesus Christ. So you have to choose. Will I now live my life through the power of the gospel and change the world for his glory? With that in mind, look at these last few verses. Romans 16, beginning verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out. Say, watch out. Now say, watch out, like you were talking to your child that's about to touch a hot stove. Say, watch out. Yeah, that's better. That's more like how he was saying it. Watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you've learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone's heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good, innocent about what is evil. You've heard this before. As Christ followers, we're to be wise as a serpent, but innocent as doves. And then this verse, man, I love this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And then we go back to another list of names. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and so Pepater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, now when we mentioned Tertius last time, I told you that probably just because of the way it sounds, his last name was Purvis, because that sounds kind of good. Tertius Purvis. He wrote down this letter, and I greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who's the city's director of public works. And our brother Cordus send you their greetings. Now, some of your Bibles at this next point have the heading that says doxology. Listen to the doxology. Now, to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Isn't that good? Yet you should do what exactly one person was prompted to do. You should just take a moment and give God praise as he comes to the conclusion of this great message about our salvation. Now, 
I want to talk about this with kind of three basic statements. And so I, I, I want to, I, I know how you, you, you like watching things. I, I want to let you know how this can go. The, the first statement, we're going to hang out there a while. The next statement, if you blink, you're going to miss it. And the last statement will we'll kind of conclude strong, all right? I think it's interesting, in these last words to the church at Rome, Paul begins by saying, watch out! Be careful! He's just read the names of real people, and we walk through and, and, and we've described the real change that they were making in the world, just like some of you, you're difference makers. You're making an impact. Real people. This Christian journey, it's not some hypothetical, it's not something we read about in a book. God changes lives, and those changed lives become world changers. That's amazing. But now he says, but lest you're confused, not all church people are good people. There are some that would lead you astray and get you into trouble. And so he says, be careful out there. Not everyone has your best interest in mind. What was the specific problem here? There were people in the church at Rome that were leading other people in the church at Rome astray. They were causing division. He says, watch out, be careful about division. What is division? It, it literally means the vision has become divided. What has he spent 16 chapters telling us the vision should be? The vision is the gospel. We're not ashamed of the gospel. We should stay focused on the gospel. That's when we talk about our church. We've told you this is not a church where we're going to get sidetracked by your politics. We're not going to get sidetracked by the latest social media trends. We're going to stay centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when you fail to do that, there is division. But here he's not talking about division over silly things. Sometimes there's division over silly things. When we do our new member class, I often tell the story about a church you can see if you drive down the interstate in Mississippi. You'll look off to the side of the interstate and you'll notice, well, that looks strange because one side of the roof has one color shingles and the other side of the roof has a different color shingles. And the story is that this church couldn't agree on what color shingles they should have when they reshingled the roof. So it's a divided shingled roof. Now, how silly does that sound? That's not as silly as some of the things churches have divided over through the years. He's not talking about those things. He's talking about big things, division over the meaning of the gospel, false teaching, he calls it. He's saying some people there are moving away from the essentials of the faith. And we often talk about there are essential things that we believe that you've got to hold to. We know who we are as a church. We know what we stand to. We, we find essential beliefs from God's Word. But there are other things that may be important to you or they may even be important to me. But they're not the essentials of their faith. So, so what we say is in essentials, we must have unity. But in non-essentials, we must have liberty. Because in all things, we must have charity. At the church at Rome, there began to be a division over the essentials. The essential nature of the gospel. So what's the essential nature of the gospel? I think this is number three in the last few minutes. The essential nature of the gospel is this. There's only one way to be saved. And that is through faith alone, by God's grace alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Anything else perverts the gospel. Anything else becomes heresy 
to the one true gospel. So you, you know what that means? Jesus, even, plus anything, is a false gospel. So Jesus plus how good you are, if you think that's what's going to get you into heaven, that's false. That's not the gospel. Jesus plus how much you give to a church or a ministry, if that's what you're depending on, that's not what's going to get you into heaven. That's not the gospel. Jesus plus how many hours you serve at the church or in ministry or whatever you do, that's not the gospel. The gospel is simply this. We're lost and need to be saved. And the only pathway to salvation is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. What does that mean? That means when I come to church, I, I sure had better look for a church that's centered on the gospel. Now, if you're part of our church family, I hope you've got a lifetime commitment. But just in case you move, or if you're not a part of our church family or you're hearing this message in one of our other platforms, I would just encourage you, if you're looking for a church, make sure you're looking for the right things. You don't choose a church based on programs, what's best for your kids. You don't choose a church based on the kind of music they sing or, or the seats that they sit in or the clothes that they wear. You choose a church that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're a part of any church or if ever you're a part of this church and it fails to be centered on the gospel, then you need to move away. That's what he's saying. When the people you're around are moving away from the essentials, then you need to move away from them. What was guiding this in their case? He makes it clear. They were being guided by the appetites of their own hearts. The reason they were causing division was they were focused on what they wanted. And let me tell you, that's still true today. If church ever becomes all about you, watch out. Because that's not what it's intended to be. But after this harsh warning, he gives them a good word. He says, but by the way, you've got a good reputation. That's kind of cool. He says, you have a reputation for being obedient in your faith. I hang out with pastors all the time. Two different times this week, I was in groups of pastors. In a few weeks, I'll be with a bunch of crazy pastors when our denomination gets together. I mean, a lot of them are losing their mind. But here's what I know. When pastors get together, I don't hear them talking like the Apostle Paul. I hear them talking about the numbers in their church and how much their budget is or those kind of things. Man, how great would it be to talk about our church and to say, man, you've got a reputation for being obedient. Man, when people talk about Mission Hill, they say those people are out sharing their faith in obedience to the commands of Jesus. Those people are sacrificially giving in obedience to the commands of Jesus. Those people are opening the scriptures and they're fasting and praying in obedience to the command of scriptures. That's what he's saying. In spite of all this that you need to be watching out for, you have a lot of good going on. So understand that. Be careful. But live with hope. And then he tells them why they live with hope. Can we look at that verse again? Verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That should, that should get you excited. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Kind of a strange choice of words. God of peace, serpent crusher. I mean, that sounds like a WWE character. Serpent crusher. And yet that's in the same sentence as God of peace. So you first got to ask, why do we call him the God of peace? Number four, 
I think this is time number four. I'm sharing with you the truth of the gospel. The Bible says you were born at war with God. You were not at peace with God. In fact, you were at wrath with God. And because of that, God got angry. Because he can't stand sin. And so when the Bible says that Jesus died on the cross as punishment for our sin, it uses a word in Romans called propitiation, which means he took on the wrath or the anger of God. But because Jesus took on the wrath and the anger of God, you know what that means? You and I could have peace with God. That's why he's called the God of peace. He, he made a way for you and me to have peace in the midst of an evil, evil world. You see, peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the absence of evil. And what he's saying here is, is evil is always going to have to be eradicated. It, it first has to be eradicated individually. You have to deal with that. Because the greatest conflict that you're going to experience, the greatest evil that you'll ever endure, is the evil of your human heart. I know you don't like to hear this, but I've told you this before. You're your own worst enemy. You're the worst person you'll ever meet. You know how I can prove that to you? Just ask yourself who's always been there at every bad decision you've ever made. You have. So you've got to start with eradicating that evil in your heart. And that's why, number five, you need to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. You need to come to that place where you understand you were born a sinner. And that sin separates you from God. And your only hope is to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin as a result of the hope of the gospel. When you're saved, that evil is eradicated from your heart. But evil must not only be eradicated individually, evil must be eradicated institutionally. You begin to look at the world and say, where do we eradicate evil in society? So church, understand this. We are not social warriors. However, because... I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And because I'm pursuing his holiness and because I've eradicated evil in my life by the grace of God and now I'm clothed in his righteousness, when I see that there are those who take human life in the form of a baby that was made in the image of God, I stand against that because I say that is evil. And because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, when I see that there are those who are trafficking young boys and young girls and young men and young women into modern-day slavery with human trafficking through massage parlors and, and, and striptease places, I stand against that evil because I say they, these were people made in the image of God and for His glory. And that means when I see homelessness on the streets, I recognize that nobody grows up as a little seven-year-old boy and, and says, I hope I can one day be homeless. So I know they're hurting and they're in need of a help. They're in the need of comfort and the hope that comes from Jesus. And I want to eradicate that evil. And that's why in a time like this, I say to Target, enough! You've lost your mind. I have to stand against the things you're standing for because it's evil in this world. And I want to live my life eradicating evil. But this is interesting. He uses a word that at first gets on my nerves. 
He says, he will soon crush Satan. I'm like, really, Lord? Like, when? I feel like sometimes I'm talking to my boys. I, the Purvis Pack, man, I love our family. We've got a couple of the boys home from college. But I'm just telling you, inevitably, there will be conversations like this in our house. Because these boys, man, they eat like horses and they drink gallons and gallons of milk. Pray for us in the name of Jesus. And so, but inevitably, I, I might walk through the house and there's like a dirty milk cup or a, a bowl or plate that had pizza on it. And it's just sitting there. And I walk by and say, son, get that up. And clean up. And inevitably, I'll hear this conversation. Okay, I will. And I'll go on my way and come back maybe an hour later. And guess what I see? I mean, it's like antibiotics are growing right there in my house. It's, it's awful. And I'll say, in the name of Jesus, clean up that mess. And then I may hear some. I'm going to do it soon. I'm like, oh, you and God got the same timetable for soon. Because that's how we feel sometimes when we're battling the enemy, isn't it? And we forget what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. See, God's not on your timetable. He's not in a hurry. But he says, I'm going to put him under your heel. That takes us back to Genesis chapter 3. Which I think for the fifth time lets me tell you some good news. The Bible says that you are created in the line of the first of creation, Adam and Eve. And they were created to relate to and to worship God. And they had everything except they weren't God. And the enemy slithered his way into their lives and he began to say, hey, I think you'd make a good God. And I just need to tell you something. It was true then, it's true today. We make awful gods. We're not good at it. But Adam and Eve didn't understand that, so they took things into their own hands. We, we got this God, we can handle it. And so sin entered the world. All of a sudden they opened their eyes and they were embarrassed because they didn't have any clothes on. And so God began to weave in this covenant of covering and he, he, he shed the blood of an animal so that they could have their bodies covered. But in the midst of this, he gives a promise in Genesis chapter 3. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so that's what Paul's now referring to in Romans 16, 20, when he says, the God of peace will soon cuss, crush Satan under your feet. So understand something. It's kind of like our salvation. Has Satan been crushed? This means yes. Remember when Jesus said, it's, it is finished. He was crushed. But guess what? He was crushed by the work of Jesus on the cross, but he's being crushed. You know how he's being crushed? He's being crushed by you. You're going to see that in just a second. But as you're sanctified, as you're more and more like Jesus, you're a Satan crusher. You're out there making a difference, putting away the evil of this world. But get this, one day he will be crushed. One day he's not even going to be able to make a whimper. There won't be a sound. He will be crushed. So Christ followers, you out there in battle, 
let me just remind you, you're, you're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. That's where you are. Don't miss what he says. You will be under your feet. Did you hear that? Look at the verse again. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Where? Under whose feet? Say my feet. If you're a Christ follower, he said he's going to crush him under your feet. You're part of the process. God uses you. And if this is true, if it is finished, then nothing you face in your life should shake you. And nothing you encounter in this world should keep you or stop you from giving your all for the cause of the gospel. You should pour it all out. You should say, I want to be all in. I don't want to waste my life. So that's why he says, be careful out there. Not everybody has your best interest in mind. And then he gives us one more reminder. He looks around the room, at least in his mind's eye. Thinks about Timothy and Lucius and Jason, Sosipater and Tertius and Gaius. And Erastus, who works for the city. And Cordus. You know what he's reminding us? You were never expected to take this journey alone. So choose to partner with those in your little corner of the world. You can't do this by yourself. We need each other. That's why the church is so important. When we come together, we're stronger. We're, we're linking arms. We're holding hands. We're shoulder to shoulder. He was saying, I'm not alone in this battle. And neither should you be. And then he gives his final words. The doxology. You know what the doxology is? I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are like the, the church we served right out of seminary. It was First Baptist Montgomery. And they sang a doxology every week as the ushers brought down the, the offering. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. They sang the doxology. That's not what I'm talking about. Doxology literally means words of praise. So after all of this, 16 chapters about what it means to be saved, how that looks, how we live it out, he then just concludes by praising God now to him who's able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So what's the point? 16 chapters. Big words. Memorable verses. What's the point? I think Paul at the end is saying, remember, it's not about you. So determine today to live your life for the glory of God. 
Say this. Say it's all about him. All of our life should be a doxology to the Lord. I want you to understand something. God is for you. He really is. He's he's for you so much that, number six, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He did something you could never do. He took the punishment. God is for you. But listen, church, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. God is for you in such a way that he establishes you. That's what this doxology begins with. Did you hear those words? Now to him who's able to establish you. We all have those moments in our life where we feel like... can't do this. I'm I'm insufficient. I don't have what I need. It's telling us that he is able. 30 years of ministry. Man, it's like everybody's waiting to be established. I talk to college students and they're thinking, man, once I get established, I'm going to give my everything to the Lord. And then they're a young adult and they've met the love of their life and they're saying, man, once we enjoy marriage for a little bit and maybe have some kids, we're, going, we're established as a family. We're going to give our all to the Lord. And then they have kids and they find out what it's like chasing them all around the planet. And, and so they spend their life and they're thinking, man, all we can do is spin our wheels and we need to get established. We need to get settled. And once we're settled, Pastor, we're going to get back into church. And we're going to give our everything to the Lord. And, and then they grow up and then they're chasing them all around the states for sports and dance and music. And, and they think, man, things need to settle down. When we're empty nesters, we're going to be established and everything's going to be okay. And, and then we're going to give our everything to the Lord. And the next thing you know, they're in empty nesters and they're thinking, whoo, we got to take a break. We're going to go take a break. We're going to retire a little early, maybe go to the mountains, maybe go to the beach. And when we get established, we're going to give everything we can to the Lord. What's it going to take to get you established? He tells us that he establishes us. We're established in the gospel But then he says something really strange. He says, it's my gospel. Did you catch that? Now to him who's able to establish you in accordance with my gospel. Why do you say, why do you not say the gospel? Please don't miss this. This was never intended to be something ethereal. Something theoretical, something simply religious. God's love for you has always been personal. And until you understand that, you've not made it your gospel. And you may know all the facts that I've stated, you may be able to share Bible verses. But the gospel's not personal until it's penetrating every area of your life. You know why churches across our culture are closing their doors? You think it's because there's no power in the gospel? You think it's because the message doesn't work anymore? 
Do you really think it's maybe because a pastor's not a good enough communicator or because the music's off-key? Is that why we're closing doors? Or could it be that the messengers of the gospel have not really made it my gospel? It's not penetrated our lives. So, so Paul says, hey, by the way, this has been the story from the beginning. Going back to the art, going back to the garden when the serpent crusher was first mentioned. God has been revealing his plan. This gospel, this good news, this pathway to salvation, it's always been at work through the prophets, through the Psalms, through the gospels. God has been painting the way. And then he makes it clear what that way is. Verse 26, he says, It's revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of our eternal God so that all the Gentiles might come, now notice this, to the obedience that comes from faith. Now, there's only one other time in Romans that we have that phrase, obedience that comes from faith. And it's found in chapter 1. Now, why is that so significant? Listen to it in chapter 1. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes through faith for his name's sake. What is that obedience that comes through faith? In this parting shot, Paul is reminding us once again of what separates Christianity from every other world religion. It's not only not about you. There's nothing you can do to get this right on your own. We're not accepted because we obey. This isn't a moralism contest about how good you can be. No, we obey because we've been accepted. We're able to obey because that obedience comes from our faith. That's why he says he is the only wise God. (laughs) What does that imply? If he is the only wise God, what does that imply? There are gods with little g's, right? Are they wise? This means no. So let me just tell you. Let me break that down for you. For those of you in the back. That means money is not a wise God. Money can become a God for you. Don't make any mistake. Money can become a God, but it's not a wise God because you can assemble a big old pile of money, and what's going to happen when one day that doctor calls and says, hey, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but you got cancer. What good is that money going to do for you? Status, man, you can climb the corporate ladder. You can become Mr. Big Shot or Miss Big Shot, and people can call you the name you want them to call you. But when it comes to the end, what's that going to do for you? I'm so thankful that God created us with the ability to enjoy relationships between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. He created sexual intercourse, and that's a good thing. But guess what? Sex is not a good God. It's not a wise God. You might have pleasure for a moment, but then that pleasurable moment will pass and you'll try to fill that legitimate need 
in a counterfeit kind of way is not a wise God. Your friends, they're not wise gods. I want to shake your world, but your family, that's not a wise God. And let me just set the record straight. You are not a wise God. You make a sorry God. And so when we look to God and say, hey, I got this, I can handle it. He may say, okay, go ahead. That's not a wise move. But if we understand who he is and what he's done and all that that means, then we're prompted to live for his glory. You caught that, right? To him, the only wise God, be glory forever. The glory of God's a hard thing to explain. I'll acknowledge that. I mean, if, if I'm... I'm talking about that drum set back there. I can begin to explain it. and you know, These round things that have something on top of them and you hit them with sticks and they make noise and you can keep... I can begin to explain that. Even stuff like that to my daughter who was born blind. When you begin to explain the glory of God, it begins to be more difficult. It's like explaining beauty. But in 13 of the 16 chapters, Paul talks about the glory of God. Let me give you a few of the examples. Chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. It's talking about how bad our situation is, how we've walked away from the glory of God. Romans 3, 23, he makes it clear. All have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. Romans 5.1 tells us what he did because of that. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 8, that verse that really encourages us, that we speak to, says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And then the peak of the summit in Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. And then in Romans six twenty seven, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then he says, amen. So be it. If I were to sum this whole book up, I would say it speaks of God's sovereign purpose for all of creation, which is to glorify himself by grace through faith in Jesus as he crushes Satan under our feet through the power of the gospel. So here's what you've got to ask. Is it your gospel? I mean, I I don't know if in 30 years there's been a message where so many times... I've reminded you of what the gospel is, what the good news is. So I'm just asking you, is it your gospel? Can you say, like the Apostle Paul said, my gospel? 
Do you know Jesus as, as your Savior? Now, we're not just mistakers who need a second chance. We're sinners who need a Savior. Is it your gospel? I wrestled through, even as I was getting ready this morning, that statement that I said to you that this was the first time in 30 years that I've preached this through verse by verse. I got mad at myself. I'm like, why? Is this so good? And then I began to think, I think it's because I'm so weak and I'm so frail and I was so afraid I'll get this wrong because there's some stuff I don't understand. And then it's like the Holy Spirit of God just reminded me, yeah, make sure everybody knows that. You don't have to understand everything about God to trust who He is and what He's done. I'm going to ask you today, will you trust him? There's no reason not to. Because God gives you everything you need in the person of Jesus Christ. All you got to do is go live your life through the power of the gospel and change the world for the glory of God. Don't miss this. On Pentecost Sunday, we celebrate the truth that the power of the Holy Spirit is residing in every believer. And unless Jesus was a liar. He said, because of that power in you, you'll do even greater things than I did. Let's start changing the world. Let's bow our heads together, church. I'm so overwhelmed this morning because this is how it should be. This is not how it is when you look at the landscape of the church and our culture. We're not living this truth. So two simple responses to this message. If you're a follower of Jesus, I, I beg you by His name and for His glory, use this as a moment just to, man, say, God, I'm all in. I want to live by the power of the gospel for your glory, and I want to be a world changer. Just show me the way. Make it evident. And you can pray that even if you're, some of you, you're doing good now. You're sprinting. You're sprinting with Jesus. That's okay. Just tell him, I'm still all in. I'm I'm right here beside you, Lord. But others of you, you've, you've kind of fallen back in this race. You need to get back on track. And you know that. But somebody's here today and you've never begun that relationship with Christ. And several times this morning you've heard what I would call the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ. That in spite of who you are, God loves you. And he's made a way for you to have right relationship with him. And when that relationship is made right, that peace with God gives you the ability to become a serpent crusher. Nothing in this world has to get in the way of what God wants you to do for His glory. But there has to be a moment where all that starts. You've got to admit that you need God, that you need salvation. You've got to believe that Jesus was enough and is enough for you. So maybe if that's you, you would just pray that prayer today. 
you don't need a magic prayer, but maybe you would say these words to the Lord. Maybe you'd just say, Jesus, just call his name. Say, Jesus, I know I need you. Now agree with him about your condition. Say, I know I'm a sinner. Just tell him that. Now acknowledge what he's done. Say, I I believe you died on the cross for my sin. Just tell him that. Let him know you're ready to be forgiven. I want to receive your forgiveness, Lord. Just tell him that. Here's the big thing, though. This is where all we can do in response to Jesus. I I want you to tell him that you're going to commit to follow him for the rest of your life. You can do that in a lot of ways. You can say, I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. You could, you could say, Jesus, I want you to come in and take control of my heart. You can pray that to him right now. You, you could say, I yield to you or I surrender. But in some way, make that commitment known to the Lord right now. Now tell him thank you. Say thank you for saving me. about to end this time in prayer, but I want you to take an important step. If you just prayed that prayer with me, you became a follower of Christ, and one of the most important things you can do is tell somebody, and I'm going to make that as simple as it possibly can be in this moment. I'm just going to ask you to lift your hand when I count to three and just tell me. You don't have to use your words. You're just lifting your hand saying, Pastor, I prayed that prayer all across this room. When I count to three, if you prayed that prayer, I want you just to lift your hand. One, two, three prayed that today. Welcome to God's family. They're almost all the way in the back. Welcome to God's family. Others of you up here in the front, welcome to God's family. It's the most important thing. Sir, welcome to God's family. I see that there. Others of you, it's the most important thing you can do. So Father, we thank you because even today on a holiday weekend, your word has brought forth the greatest miracle that could ever occur. The miracle of a changed life. The miracle of those that were headed to hell now on a pathway to heaven. The miracle of darkness being turned into light. The miracle of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in and through your church. All glory and praise and honor to you, Lord Jesus. Now, as followers of Christ, we just say we want to live our lives for your glory. Whatever we do, eating, sleeping, drinking, worshiping, working, educating ourselves. May it all be for your glory, Lord. In our homes, Lord, may we give you glory. In our workplaces, may we give you glory. In the classroom, may we give you glory. In our relationships, may we give you glory. In how we treat one another, may we give you glory. In how we steward our resources, may we give you glory. Lord, as we worship you, may we give you glory. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God forever. We worship you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand. Let's worship him together, even now.